My philosophy professor, Dr. Jensen. Sure, uh, Jack and Jack. I, um, I went to Miami University, the one in Ohio. I majored in political science. I actually was involved in high school in uh, a bunch of political stuff, but I was always interested in the theory part. And at Miami, I focused on the theory part of uh, political science and took a bunch of philosophy classes, plus some history, uh, plus some ancient Greek. And then when it came time to think about graduate school, I was interested more on the philosophy side of politics than the science side of politics. So I ended up going into uh, philosophy, but focusing on moral, social, and political thought and found my way to Notre Dame, uh, where I studied with a bunch of really interesting people. And then I uh, did a couple of visiting assistant professor jobs around the Great Lakes region, Valparaiso University, Hope College, and Calvin College before uh, the Air Force picked me up, and I've been here since 2010. And you wrote a book, correct? Uh, I did write a book. Civil Society and Liberal Democracy? Yes. So the book is a, a, a significant expansion of my dissertation, which was also on civil society. Uh, in the book, I aim to tell a story about what civil society is, especially compared to uh, what you might think of as the other two main sort of spheres of a human society. So you might think of a human society as having three components. There's uh, the civil society piece, there's the uh, government piece, and then there's the marketplace. And each one of them operates under uh, a different kind of logic, a different set of sort of internal rules, and yet all three of them have to work together to get a functioning society. And my book kind of walks that whole thing through. One of the thing that kind of stuck out to me is your idealiz- according to your idealization, um, groups of citizens and civil society are in- actively engaged in a grand conversation about the nature of the good life. So in your book, did you kind of create the like your utopia? Yes-ish, right? Ish? So okay. utopias are interesting. So I don't tell a story of a substantive utopia where I tell you exactly what the good life is and how to lead it. Instead, what I argue is, is that any flourishing society is actively pursuing an understanding of the good life together with how it might be lived. And that this is the function ultimately of civil society. What civil society does is try to understand and pursue the good life. And that the best way to understand government is not as pursuing the good life itself, but is instead providing uh, the framework in which the good life can be pursued. And at the same time, uh, the economic sphere isn't, well, there are ways in which individuals can live out particular versions of the good life in the economic sphere. It by itself is not the good life or the way in which good life is achieved. But in this way, best to think of both the marketplace and government as tools in order to help you live a good life in the context of civil society. So the civil society is really where you ought to think of yourself as living. Mm-hmm. And to kind of bring it back from society to USAFA, we have a lot of conversations here, you know, about, you know, and, and it's, as mentioned, we just have to have a um, kind of a discourse and discussion about what, like our virtues and values, and especially being uh, in the profession of arms as we are here. Yes. Um, and one of these conversations and being the honor podcast is about honor in general. Um, we have a lot of yes. conversations about honor. <laughs> yes. And so how do the conversations about honor, not, not just in society, but at USAFA, kind of play into the like, overall community? Uh, that's a good question. 
honor as a concept is vague in our sort of contemporary discourse. There are many different things we can mean by it, and we often have to stipulate, which is to say we have to decide together what we're going to mean by it in order to make any progress in uh, defining a moral ideal, let's say, or defining what sorts of steps we need to take in order to achieve it. Uh, in this way, yeah, I've been working with a number of people here to try to give a better understanding of what it means, uh, what honor means, what it means to live honorably. And uh, uh, my own approach has been to work out of uh, the 19th century use of the expression, where uh, a concept of honor and honorable living is tied to the concept of a particular community and a particular code. Uh, where in the 19th century, the way honor codes show up is a sort of a, a, a more totalistic way of thinking about uh, living a particular kind of honorable life in a particular kind of honorable community. In this way, to be part of an honor community is to be a member of a culture where there's a shared set of goods, a shared set of norms, a shared set of rules, where you are always in the process of training the younger generation up in the rules and practices and rituals of the community, uh, holding one another accountable for those uh, rules, rituals, and practices. Uh, and then, together with other members of the community, uh, participating in continuing argument about what the content of that code ought to be, right? In this way, a code should never be static, right? A static code becomes dogma, and uh, historically, uh, sociologically, dogmas tend to die because uh, what, what keeps them alive is the continuing argument about them. The way that one becomes committed to a code is through argument about it. One comes to see that it's the right code, but you come to see it's the right code when it's stressed, when it's challenged, when it's a matter of debate. In this way, it's like many, many things we have in our society. We don't really know that they work until we put them under stress. And then once they're under stress, sometimes they break, sometimes they buckle, and we have to repair them. And the same thing ought to be true of any honor code. So speaking of communities, how do we bring in cultures and different communities into our honor community that may not have the same values or upbringings in the case of four degrees coming in onto the honor system. How do we deal with that here at USAFA? So this is a challenge for any honor community, right, is the initiation of new members into the culture. And um, I don't know that this is a particularly new or different challenge for us. I mean, it's different in the sense that uh, the four degrees who come in now are different than the ones that we brought in 10 years ago or different than the ones that we brought in 30 years ago. Uh, and so we have to adapt the way in which we think about uh, rituals of initiation, the way in which we teach and cultivate uh, practices and virtues will have to be uh, tailored to the particular challenges of the people that we bring in. So for example, uh, many of the folks who join us these days, at least if you follow the studies, are much more sensitive to uh, uh, for example, racial injustice or uh, gender-based injustice than maybe the generations we brought in uh, 30 years ago. And so you might think, uh, in that sense, insofar as we as an honor community are, cult are, are committed to you know, racial justice and, and, uh, and gender justice as that shows up in you know, particular policies and practices, we have less to do to initiate the current generation than we might have had to do in the past. Uh, but there may be other areas where the current generation is uh, weak compared to generations of the past. And maybe not necessarily with respect to honor, but um, 
for example, it's a, it's a, I don't know what kind of actual evidence to support this, but it's at least a stereotype of the current generation that attention spans are shorter. Well, that makes for a challenge with respect to learning that maybe we did not have 30 years ago, but that we have now. I don't know to what degree that's actually accurate, but that's at least the kind of ways in which you could see different challenges for different generations. So then going off that with our generation, one thing that we've noticed is there's a lot of moral relativity. Um, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and I'm not gonna say anything about what you're doing is right or wrong. How do we address that in an honor context when we come here? Good, so one of the benefits of thinking of both Yusafa as an honor community and as having an honor culture is that we can be upfront about the particular set of goods, the particular sets of virtues, the particular rituals, the rights, the duties that we expect uh, from members of our community. And as long as we're upfront and clear about that, um, people who join should know what they're getting into. So they join voluntarily, right? We would have a different conversation if we're talking about people who are you know, we're conscripting, right? We're forcing to join our culture and our code, in which case, uh, the honor code is in that sense alien to them uh, and that would be that would be a different problem but what we have are people who are volunteering and so uh, one would expect that volunteers would have maybe not a full sense of what it means to participate in the community but at least an interest and uh, an outsider's view of the community something they want to pursue want to understand want to be part of and that should provide at least the initial basis for uh, you know successful integration do you think it's harder to kind of debate and talk about the code when you're volunteering to adhere to a code? And, or do you kind of bring your past sort of experiences to the table in discussing a code you volunteered to, volunteering to adhere to an honor code? But is it harder for discussion to take place if the code's kind of what you, like the standard you have to meet? If we're sensitive to your worry, what we do is we recognize is that um, Honor cultures have a certain kind of uh, trajectory, or uh, members of them have a certain kind of developmental trajectory. So, and we have this built into the character framework and in the way in which the 47-month uh, program is supposed to work, right? Which is the recognition that the first thing you have to do is understand the place in which you live. So we set up uh, a set of practices designed to give you a real sense for what it means to live under the code. We give you practice living under the code so that the conversation or debate about the content of the code is something that you don't do until you understand it and have some experience living under it. So ideally, uh, the rich debates about the content of the code would be happening among you know, the folks who are further along in living under the code. Whereas, you know, if I have been under the code for a month, uh, and I begin to raise objections, that the problem would be that I might not really understand what I'm objecting to. Makes a lot of sense, honestly. I didn't, I, I, <laughs> I haven't thought about it that way. So is the threat of being seen as dishonorable a good enough reason to see honor as a virtue here at USAFA? Uh, that's interesting. So some philosophers want to say yes, right? They want to say that uh, threat or fear, or even uh, as you've kind of framed it, shame, um, is an important feature of keeping an honor community flourishing. Uh, other philosophers want to say no, that uh, your uh, participation in the code should be because, uh, your, your compliance with the code, let's say, should be grounded in your appreciation 
and belief in the content of the code and not your fear of punishment for violating the code, right? In some ways, the, the fear of punishment suggests a, a break between what you think is actually good for you and what the organization thinks is good for you. But if the code is well built and you understand your place in the community well enough, there shouldn't be that break. You should think that what life under the code looks like is exactly how one ought to live because it's also contributing to your pursuit of particular individual and common goods that you take to be right. Now, part of the things we argue about when we argue about the content of the code is just that. Is the individual goods I'm pursuing, do they match up with the goods that I'm pursuing under the code? And if they're not, we need to have, those are conversations that are good to have. But if we never have the conversation and you have an increasingly wider rift between what you think is good for you and what the institution thinks is good for you, then you do get these kind of fear-based motivations. Which I think is a pretty huge problem, especially when it comes to people who see a lot of their classmates get in trouble for honor hits and then what do they think of the code? Oh, they just saw their buddy have to go through a probation process and they don't want to do that. So they just see the honor code as the fear rather than you talk to somebody who graduated in 1973, they just, or you see somebody who graduated maybe 30, 40 years ago and they just are, they, they just see the code in a different light. They see the code as not something to be feared. I think, and I think that also might come with, um, post post-graduation pride about USAFA and the honor code in the system. Um, but it, it is a problem that we see. And when you talk to any any other cadet, they see the honor code as something to be feared. So. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, it almost sounds like you're using the code in the narrow sense of just the words on the wall. And I think if the honor code is the whole of what governs the honor community to which you belong, which includes the words on the wall, but together mm -hmm. with the, the norms and virtues and rituals and practices that we have codified in many, many other ways, or, or many of which you know are, are, are uncodified. You've got a number of practices that you do, things that you expect to do, that you think it is right to do, that are written down nowhere, right? Is, is there a rule somewhere that says, upon completing your last class, you should jump into a fountain? <laughs> no. Does every single cadet do it? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Because you take it to be a central part of what it means to be part of this community. There, there is a good to be found in, in that particular, uh, what probably for most of you is a, kind of, a certain kind of ritual. I take that to be as much a part of the code as the, as the written piece on the wall. Uh, it just so happens that written piece on the wall becomes you know, the special focus of, of punishment. Right? It's not like you're punishing people for not jumping in the fountain. Uh, though you probably would shame them for not doing it, right? <laughs> Uh, so, the, the, which is that there would be some feet, some accountability feedback attached to uh, to that sort of non uh, that behavior that would be not compliant with what I take the broader code to be, uh, and it might be that the, in this way the, the code that's on the wall, and I, I take this as part of what the superintendent is looking at, is trying to find ways to make that code uh, uh, a more living and internalized piece of the honor culture of the cadets, in the same way that something like jumping in the fountain would be. So, in my opinion, the the framing of how people are held accountable to violating the code can be kind of misconstrued. So some person can be framed, like if they commit an honor violation, especially early on in their career, when they're still being onboarded under this sort of culture and community, it can be seen as kind of a growth opportunity and um, an ability for them to kind of learn from their mistakes rather than just something that they try to avoid and then get caught. Yes, and I think uh, at least from what the superintendent you know has told us, he's committed to uh, that kind of approach, to a, to a more of a growth mindset approach, a developmental approach, to the way we think about 
uh, how the, the code that we've got written on the wall plays a role in the life of cadets. And, and, and we'll see going forward how that gets worked out in practice. But uh, uh, I think we could all appreciate kind of a shift from a punitive approach to the code to a, to a growth-oriented approach to the code. Sir, I don't have any more questions. Do you have any parting shots that you would like to leave the cadet wing with? Hopefully I haven't been shooting anybody. I've just been... Uh, <laughs> And again, like uh, like all of these sorts of things that we say, right? I mean, my views are the views of one particular professor of philosophy. They do not reflect the uh, the views of the Air Force, the Department of Defense. Certainly not the views of the superintendent. Uh, uh, I don't speak as a representative of the academy. I just speak as a professor of philosophy. So there's just that little piece. <laughs> I love it, sir. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, sir, for agreeing to join me, especially right after a, a heated discussion, seventh period uh, ethics class. But oh, it's always good. <laughs> Thank you, sir, for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here.